In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. The Disney Film Library features a really vast catalog of fantastic movies that range from romance to comedy and action and adventure, and I would say a really key film that blends a variety of different genres, uh, perhaps most effectively in the action-adventure side of uh, things is National Treasure. It was a 2004 sensation. Uh, It wasn't necessarily going to be a humongous film. Uh, Certainly had a good budget and great cast and crew behind the scenes, but not, but it, uh, you know, when it first debuted, I don't think people necessarily knew what to make of it. They didn't necessarily know if it would be a, a huge tentpole film, and it actually performed quite well at the box office, so much so that it earned a sequel three years later. Most recently, the National Treasure Edge of Siri, excuse me, Edge of History uh, TV series uh, debuted on Disney+. Plus. The 10-episode series uh, featured a few characters from the original films, but ultimately takes the uh, flair and fun of National Treasure in new directions. It's a it's wonderful franchise. It and what I've always loved about it is how it seamlessly blends uh, parts of American and world history into a very realistic plot of how there are clues uh, resting all around us, uh, just waiting to be uncovered. And I'm not the only one who loves National Treasure. In fact, uh, it has earned a quite a big fan base over the years. And two of those key fans are. Doctors Aubrey R. Paris and Emily M. Black, who host the National Treasure Hunt podcast and have recently authored a new book called National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy. Uh, I'm going to be talking with the author duo uh, as they uh, make sense of what makes National Treasure such a beloved series, what makes it plausible, and ultimately uh, what makes it 
just worth uh, appreciating time and time again um, in, in various ways, you know, to deconstruct the films, but also now the series. There's books that go alongside them and much more. So I welcome you to uh, sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with Aubrey and Emily as they uncover National Treasure. So it all started with Benjamin Gates stealing the Declaration of Independence, and it manifested into a fan-favorite franchise about discovering all the clues around us. The National Treasure series has sparked newfound appreciation for uh, American history and everything in between through the release of the new series on Disney Plus, that is National Treasure Edge of History, and helping further our dive into the wonderful world of everything within this brand are today's guests. We have Drs. Aubrey R. Paris and Emily M. Black, who are the hosts of the National Treasure Hunt podcast, and they are also the authors of the new book, National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy. Today on Notably Disney, I welcome the duo to discuss their original engagement with the franchise and what the podcast covers, what readers can expect from this title that shows the relevance of the film's content in our daily lives and connections to American history. Uh, it's really a lot of fun. So welcome, Aubrey and Emily. Oh my gosh, that might be the nicest intro we've ever had. Thank you so much. I was gonna so say. <laughs> oh my God, it is such a pleasure to be here amongst a like-minded like yourself. Um, for everyone listening, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. Thank you for also uh, introducing yourselves based on voice, because that's always one of the nuances with podcasts. Like, who who am I actually listening to right now when oh there's my God. multiple people in the conversation? Totally. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and feel free to to jump in however you'd like. If both of you want to answer a question or or trade off whatever you want to do, um, can you both just start about? And I know you cover this a little bit in the book, but how you bonded over your passion for this film franchise. Oh, yeah. It is one of the roots of our friendship. Um, So Emily and I are former college roommates. Um, We lived together for three years at Ursinus College, which is a tiny liberal arts school in Pennsylvania, uh, not far from Philadelphia, very national treasure relevant city. And actually right next to Valley Forge, also relevant to national treasure world. Um, We used to joke amongst ourselves, but it was also a joke amongst our other friends that no one understood how we lived together. They were like, you two could not be more different. Uh, We had different tastes in books, in music, in extracurricular activities, literally everything we disagreed on. Um, But we learned very early on when trying to figure out what, if anything, we had in common that uh, one of the only things was a shared love of the National Treasure films. And so we watched them a lot together. Well, that's the the power of movies uh, that they can bring people together. And uh, and I'm and I'm curious, uh, you know, what finally sparked the notion of creating a podcast around this film series and then consequently the book? Um, do you want to give the short answer and then I can elaborate? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a great question. It's one of my favorites. Um, Aubrey and I both got kind of wrapped up after college in our like PhD journeys and lost track of each other a little bit in terms of communication. Um, and one day I saw that Aubrey was calling me, which I felt meant like something was horribly wrong. 
um, because we hadn't talked in probably a little over a year or so. Um, and here Aubrey was calling to uh, pitch this idea of doing a podcast uh, all about national treasure. Okay, she makes it sound crazy, but it wasn't. It was one step short of crazy, if you will. Um, what actually happened was it was early in COVID times. And I think I, for one, was really looking for something to do to reconnect with hobbies and passions to take me away from work at the end of the day and get me in a healthier mindset. And so I was listening to one of my Bachelor franchise podcasts, and the host was interviewing um, someone who had developed an entire podcast and a couple of books about the Back to the Future movies. And I was sitting there, I'm in the shower, you know, all great ideas are had in the shower. And I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm like, I don't know, do I have any movies that I like this much to dedicate all this time to the way this guy is doing on, on Back to the Future? Also, aren't there only like three Back to the Future movies? He made a whole podcast about this. And that's when it hit me. And I was like, I do like podcasting and I do like National Treasure. And if this guy could do this for Back to the Future, I know I could do this for National Treasure and there's only one person I could do it with. And that was Emily. And so I stepped out of the shower and immediately called her. It seems daunting though, I I imagine to dedicate a whole podcast around a, pr a product, if you will, that up until Edge of History was, you know, four, four and a half hours worth of content. Back to the Future, you know, you mentioned three films. How did you imagine that would unfold in terms of having enough content that you could produce out of something that ultimately is relatively contained? Uh, that That's a great question. Um, I will say that I have been the skeptic in this entire process. Uh, so basically the question that you are asking that's what I was asking Aubrey like the entire time I was like who's gonna listen to this how are we gonna talk about like what are we gonna talk about there's there's two movies so I'm here once she convinces me to do it I'm here thinking like okay we got maybe two seasons worth of material and then you know we'll be done uh and it'll have been you know a fun thing to do even if people don't listen um and I think the thing that really kind of sold me on it was that Aubrey kind of brought up the idea of one of the classes that we had taken uh, during our time at our sinus college called uh, CIE, which stands for the Common Intellectual Experience. It's a class that all the freshmen take um, at our sinus college, uh, both semesters of their freshman year. And um, I personally was like very heavily involved in the program throughout my entire time in college. But the goal of the class is basically to read kind of like older texts. So there was some stuff from like the Bible, there was some philosophy, there was some stuff on race. And it was to just kind of like consider what these authors and what these books were saying about the world and basically like looking for a deeper meaning in what was just written on the page. Um, and Aubrey was like, I, I think we can do that, but with a movie. And I honestly, that is, that's what sold me was being able to delve into the deeper stuff. 
It was really tapping into our interdisciplinary roots because we are both scientists, but with a solid liberal arts background, we were able to look at a movie like National Treasure, which has so much in it if you if you really take a close look and dive into history and ethics and science and character development and comparisons to other popular franchises and music and I can keep going right like there are so many ways that you can look at these movies um and then you get to the bigger even bigger question of these movies the first one came out in 2004 it is currently 2023 these are almost 20 years old as a franchise and yet they are so referenced in pop culture and in response to current events even today where does that staying power come from why do these movies remain relevant and sources of inspiration and um and calls to action in the most joyous and most scathing moments in our history recently so everything from a fourth of july fireworks display to you know supreme court decisions this movie is being brought up and and our thought is a part of this is a part of the reason for that is because it can connect to so many people based on this interdisciplinary premise that i think is really underappreciated sorry that was probably way more than you were hoping for an answer to that question no, you you both uh, did not ramble at all. I think that gives a lot of contextualization. And uh, no, I, I, at times I talk with folks where I ask one question and it's a 20 minute response. So no, that was that was very helpful. But one thing I, I gathered from the book and I see how this manifests in the podcast as well is the, the notion of this observation of the smallest details. I think you both hearkened back to that uh, a few minutes ago and finding those interdisciplinary connections. So like one of the details you mentioned in the book going back to the first film was one the opening scene uh, the opening scene with young ben using a chair turned ladder to retrieve a book which is very much like franklin's invention talk about basic science like the the penetration depth of medical metal detectors and i mean i was just absolutely riveted by how much you were able to gather and i see how that interdisciplinary background factors in, but I guess I'm curious in terms of approaching the book and really looking at it from a chronological standpoint with the screenplay and or the film and all the facets, how did you curate all these little pieces of knowledge? How were you re-watching or uh, taking in the film to be able to curate all of this and then make it ultimately consumable to a reading audience? Well, the fact that you have said that it's consumable to a reading audience makes me feel very good that we did something right. <laughs> so I'm also you. an academic, so there's that caveat, but go for it. Um, I think, so in terms of the curation, it really, the book really is a love letter to our podcast. So much of the content that we had generated over, I guess at the time of drafting two years of the podcast, um, were things that we had explored to some extent on the podcast already. And so we asked ourselves the question, do we break this book up into chapters based on disciplines um, or how do we organize this? And we ended up landing on a chronology of the films um, because I think it doing so best demonstrates how these these different factors and disciplines are so integrated and tied together to create such a cohesive set of films. Um, how we actually picked out the details to cover, 
I think it happens a little bit naturally when you've seen movies as many as we times as we have seen these two. Um, you know, we did take very detailed notes early on in our podcast journey on what happens in both movies so that we could provide like a recap and commentary episode. And that became a really useful source document to be able to go back and say, hey, like what scientific stuff happened, you know, three quarters of the way through the first movie or something like that. So it was really when it came time to do the drafting, um, I think we had many conversations where we sat down, we looked at our podcast episode notes and said, okay, what are we diving into here? What could we go into further? What information are we still missing? And then kind of filled in the blanks with additional research. Um, I mean, I probably tortured you with the book process. I don't know if you have a different perspective of this. Uh, No, I mean, it was, it was, it was hard. Uh, Definitely. It was, it was hard to, to write and to to put it all um, together, I, I I completely agree with what Aubrey Aubrey said in terms of we had a lot of the information, um, or not a lot, but we had some of the information from the the podcast episodes already, um, and I think you know we did have a lot of conversations about kind of how to present uh, all of the information in the book. And I think the thing that really struck me, and I actually don't know, Aubrey, if I've ever shared this with you, is um, in, in writing it in uh, the chronology of the films, it can serve as kind of like a companion piece to the film's themselves. And I mean, I listen to a ton of podcasts on television shows where they go episode by episode and being able to watch the episodes and then listen to the podcast is always something that's like so helpful uh, to me personally. So I really liked the idea and I'm hoping people, you know, maybe some people will use the book this way um, of breaking it down into chapters that are in chronological order so people can watch part of the film and then kind of read what we've been talking about and kind of been like, oh, well, I, I didn't actually notice that was there or, oh, yeah, I noticed that too, something like that. It almost feels like uh, unpacking the symbolism, kind of in the same way that viewers, or excuse me, kind of in the same way that folks might read, you know, a famous American novel and then go to Cliff Notes to know, well, what does this really mean? What's the the symbolism behind, um, I don't know, a you know a, a, a you know a message or or the use of this word or things like that. And that's what National Treasure does: is that there's so much concentrated in every scene. And I think you all illustrate that. And by no means am I comparing this to Cliff Notes, but the point is in terms of giving further elaboration to what you're seeing in one media and medium and then in another context. So that's what was really fulfilling, I think, for me is to realize, well, there was a lot of thought put into every scene. Yes. And I think some of the the motivation we had that was secondary beyond the story that we already told is this idea of, you know, being entrenched in this franchise now for almost three years. We did not create these stories by any means, these films. However, we do feel some sense of like pride over them at this point. So we are very familiar with common criticisms of these films, which tend to be, number one, this is ridiculous. The films are like completely impossible. So like they're not even worth giving the time of day, number one. And number two, 
all of this is fake history. None of this is real. So answering to those two criticisms became very important to us because we knew being deeply entrenched in this franchise that those were both very inaccurate, right? Number one, yes, this is not something that you're going to see written into the Washington Post as something that happened last week at the National Archives that someone stole the declaration. However, by going into each element of the heist and examining each of the science and tech tricks and, and all the other tools and preparations that were taken, they, to use a phrase that we use on the podcast frequently, the, the creators and the production team made the impossible as possible as possible, right? As possible as they could. And so I think that that deserves a little bit more respect. I also wish, and this came through in a lot of the histor historical analyses in the book, I wish people understood just how many plot points are inspired by real history. You know, even something like the uh, Independence Hall scenes, right, and being able to reference a specific time and, you know, Ben Gates says, oh, this, this um, engraving of Independence Hall was done by Benjamin Franklin's friend and blah, blah, blah. Well, that isn't exactly true, but there is a piece of American currency that has an engraving of Independence Hall that was done by Benjamin Franklin's friend. You know what I mean? So like all of these pieces have some inspiration, historical inspiration to them. And it's just, we don't recognize that enough as, as, as a movie going audience. We want to change that. <laughs> no, I, I love that, that point. And it makes me think back to something you both say very explicitly early in the book is the notion of that national treasure is not a ripoff of the Da Vinci Code. Um, and you talk about the timing of when the screenplay was written many years before the publication or before the publication of the book and subsequently the film. And yet there continues to be misinformation about that. Same argument applied to, um, I'm not sure if you all ever saw John Carter, um, the uh, Disney film from about a decade ago it was based on the Ed Edgar Rice Burroughs book um, from like the early 1900s and people watch the film they're like this is a rip off of Star Wars and, and all these other sci-fi fare but it actually this book was written in the early 1900s so I, I saw that comparison as I was reading your title and I think it's really important that you illuminate folks to that. Oh, thank you for noticing uh, that is another one of those if, if I gave you the two sticking points that's the third one we wanted to illuminate the truth behind it. Emily is laughing because she thinks I care about this way too much but no, no, no. Um, I am laughing because I personally really like the Da Vinci Code. Um, and so seeing it like compared to National Treasure didn't rub me the wrong way. Um, I was always like, I mean, cool. Like they're both treasure hunt movies. Like that's that's the kind of stuff that I'm into. Um, and I think it wasn't until Aubrey kind of started to point out some of the like timing stuff that you know we were able to find that I was really like oh well I didn't know that people thought kind of like that national treasure you know came from basically like the da Vinci code um I'm also laughing uh briefly because um I completely agree with the idea that Aubrey um is sharing about wanting to kind of like tell people the truth about what's going on um and once again i mean this is just the way that 
National Treasure, I guess, tangentially, our podcast, our book relates to society today, um, is you kind of have this idea of you can tell people the truth about a situation, but if they have a thought about it, like they're going to stick, they're going to stick with their own interpretation, even if you give them kind of all of the information. Um, so I really like the idea that we're giving people the opportunity to learn, uh, you know, what really happened or, you know, what really went into creating the movie or the history and stuff like that. Um, and I hope that we're able to change some people's minds, but if not, we're at least able to provide a really cool experience for other people who really like the movie. Well, and I think that's what uh, a good piece of entertainment does. And I talk about this at times um, on other episodes of the podcast where content that Disney or any other studio creates serves as a foundation for folks to want to explore more about something. I think National Treasure has that effect in terms of more deeply valuing American history. And you talk about the cultural impact. And one of the one of the lines that I really appreciate in the book is, is the following, and I'd love for you to kind of explore this notion further, which is you write, quote, ultimately Ben's confidence is matched only by his reverence for history, a trait that comes across throughout the franchise whenever Ben identifies a particularly poignant clue or finds himself in a historically significant location. This reverence lends an air of nobility to Ben's cause, while potentially answering the question of why we, the audience, root for Ben to succeed despite our incredulity of over his course of action, end quote. And clearly, people may, and you allude to this, people may follow careers related to, um, you know, entering, you know, whether it be American government or working at a museum or in other spaces, because of having seen these films and having engaged with them. And I'd love for you to kind of explore further about the general impact of these films, the books, and the now the series on, on different, uh, parts of American culture and just society more broadly? Well, to, to begin, I think we immediately grappled with the question quite a bit. Why do we root for Ben? What is the reason for that? Because he is doing something that not only seems impossible, but is very illegal, right? And, and ultimately, he is a treasure hunter. He characterizes himself more as a treasure protector, but he is, at, at, at you know, by definition, a treasure hunter. And we see lots of examples of other pieces of media and pop culture where treasure hunters, they might be cool, but they're not always good, right? And their motivations can be really questionable. So in looking at what National Treasure presents, you have a character who in Ben has the desire to find these treasures for the least stereotypical reason you could possibly imagine for a typical movie about treasure hunts and he's juxtaposed with his villain who always has a far more traditional and selfish motivation ian howe mitch wilkinson in the second movie both very selfish motivations ian motivated by wealth and, and money and greed um, mitch motivated by fame um, fame and fortune really and then you compare them to ben who is literally going to find a treasure and then if it was fully up to him he would keep none of it right? He's doing things because he wants to return lost culture to its 
and to the to the descendants of the ancestors who lost that culture he wants to prove um that his family has been you know a noble family trying to protect this treasure all along and you get the impression that this is his life's calling. You look at every minor detail about what we know about Ben Gates as a character, and he is trained for this moment. He has been trained for this moment to find a treasure and then, you know, be noble and, and give it up, right? And all of that, it makes it very, very hard to root against him. Yeah, and as I learned from both of you via the books, the uh, that was published around the time of Book of Secrets, the the Gates family mystery. Well, Ben has degrees in mechanical engineering, American history. He has like, didn't he have like a like a licensure in like diving or something? He did. Like, yep. And and you were you're able to pull this from another source to help contextualize how Ben has all of these capabilities because we really don't know that backstory via the context of the film. So I think that's really helpful for for readers to know that. I think it's really strange because we know so little about him, but every detail we do know is oddly specific, right? And and so you have to ask yourself, why did they choose to include these details? And it was in a way to to further justify and and support his ability to accomplish these monumental tasks. And I think that's what what a really good you know you use the term companion, so to speak. I mean, the book as a companion to the the films and other parts of the franchise that it it allows us to to engage more with the material and feel like and 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 your podcast does the same purpose to, to have another way of of making sense of what we're seeing on screen or or reading via those uh, fictional books um, and I and I think that's that's very effective in terms of um, just enhancing that appreciation. Um, I, I mean, I was just blown away by the the level of specificity um behind you know things that you take for granted like you know uh, I, I remember very vividly I rewatched the original um and the the scene where um where Riley is illuminating to Abigail about the um the the bill and the the clock and in, in, um in was it Philadelphia and how with daylight saving time and how that then has an impact and how you 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 all explain it much more sophisticatedly than me but my point is is that you're, you're able to to look a, a kind of explore more about the history behind that so we realize that there's there's a lot that goes into this and and clearly the writers of the film um factored uh took that into account so i think it's it's helpful that you're you're able to to look into all of that i yeah i don't know i mean i keep thinking i have something to say but I feel like you're just Brett. You're articulating so well. No, like, exactly no, I'm just trying to make sense. Trying to do. <laughs> no, I'm trying to make sense of of you know. It's just a. It's a, what I find really incredible is just how how there's all this backstory that we take for granted as a viewing audience, oftentimes. But I think you all are able to kind of go beyond the curtain and and kind of explore that more. How did you, and I know I kind of alluded to this earlier with the details, but I guess I'm curious, how did you know, like, how much detail to go into, or like, if there were particular scenes and like, oh, we don't need to go into that facet, we'll, we'll look at this, but not that. I will say, Aubrey reined me in, in some cases, and I feel like I reined Aubrey in, in other cases. Um, so, for example, I am 
a musician by training. I also have a degree in in music. Um, and in addition to that, I love romance and love stories. So aside from kind of the basic like history and like science, which Aubrey and I both like completely agreed on from the beginning, I feel like if it was up to me, I would have chosen to go very in-depth into the, all the different facets of the love stories that are present, as well as the musical structure of the films. And I said, for the love story, Aubrey was able to kind of rein me in and be like, okay, well, that's not, it's not the biggest, right, part of the movie. Like, we, Ben stealing the Declaration of Independence, right? Or, you know, like you were saying, Brett, like Riley is is talking about daylight savings time as it refers to, you know, a clue that they're trying to solve. But like the love story, there's maybe a total of five minutes of the entire film, um, at least in the first one, and then probably also in the second one devoted to that. And then for the music, at least for me, I want to take all of my training and go super in depth with kind of like chord structures and use all these fancy terms and Aubrey was kind of like we have to remember that we're writing this for a very broad audience right so we have to keep in mind not only what they want to know but also what their familiarity is with different topics. So when you go to read the book, you'll notice that we have stuff in there about the music, but it's more sparse than I think I would have chosen, right, if Aubrey hadn't pointed out, thankfully, um, that not everyone was going to understand, right, what I was saying. And it also, I think, just it, it speaks, honestly, to the the relationship that Aubrey and I have and going back to, you know, what Aubrey was saying at the beginning, like how we're so different, but we work very well together because I feel like we were both able to find specific things that we were very interested in and then lay them out in a way where we weren't, I know you keep saying like, we're going very in depth and I agree that we are, but I feel like something that Aubrey probably agrees with is, we could go so much more in depth with all of this stuff, right? So across the board, we kind of had to rein it in a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, I felt similarly in that I think you pushed back on all of the behind the scenes details, like in terms of how certain things were filmed, which is something that I found really interesting. So we didn't have too, too much of that. Um, but I think, Emily, you allude to a good point, which was, we asked ourselves very early on who is the audience for this book, and we tried to be as ambitious as possible. Um, and we wanted it to be for the national treasure lover, lover, the <laughs> for the national treasure lover, and for the national treasure novice. And so we needed to be able to explain things, explain plot in enough detail that even if you've only seen this once, almost twenty years ago, you can still follow along. Um, but you're going to get something out of it if you know the story by heart as well. So that was an important, I think, factor that we tried to keep in mind. We'll see how successful we were. Well, and that is always the, the challenge of any author um, in terms of figuring out how much content to allocate. And, and it is pretty you know, balanced between the, the two films. 
And then, you know, there's the notion of toward the end, you, you think about the future of the franchise and, um, you know, the debut of Edge of History and this desire, and you go, both go into great detail into envisioning what a third film would look like. And certainly I would, I'll, I'll join you in how I can with that campaign. Um, but I, I'm curious in terms of, uh, you know, you both had the unique opportunity to be on the red carpet for the premiere of Edge of History. And this really has been a renewed attention to a franchise that for all, you know, otherwise has been dormant for, for quite a while. Um, what were your favorite experiences while interviewing the cast and crew in, in that particular context? It's very different than when you've had some of the, uh, some of the crew on the podcast to talk more in depth and red carpet. It's very um, bite-sized, so to speak. So how do you all make sense of that? Oh my gosh. We could talk about this for hours. <laughs> we won't, but we could. Um, we made it our goal since we were the only sort of specialists, let's say, in, in terms of the franchise on the carpet, we made it our goal to ask questions that we really, really hoped the actors and the executive team would not have gotten from anyone else. We wanted to use our unique knowledge of the franchise to ask some some deeper questions. Uh, and I feel like we did a decent job of, of accomplishing that, especially because you only have maybe one to three minutes with a person, depending on what order they're in on the carpet. Um, for me, uh, there were two big highlights. One was meeting John Turtletaub, the director. Um, he was so gracious and was really welcoming of conversations about National Treasure 3. We were really pleased because we felt like we illuminated by interviewing him for the first time that we have seen um, from someone as high up as, you know, he's EP on the series and he is um, the director of the films. He admitted that for a third movie, it will be completely distinct from the series. And that was something that I think the National Treasure fan community had wondered about quite a bit once this show was announced with quite a bit of trepidation. You know, how much are we going to see a crossover if we ever get the third film? And he confirmed that, you know, the third film is for the movie audience, which which I think was really nice to learn. Um he all, you know, we also have a great relationship with him now. We um, recently released an episode of our podcast interviewing him, which is a ton of fun. And there might just be a, a special secret message from him in our book that folks should uh, go digging for. And that's all I'll say about that. Um, the other really nice moment that I know Emily also really enjoyed was meeting Marianne and Cormac Wiberly in person. Um, we had been in touch with them for a long time on uh, social media, and it was the first time we actually got to, to meet them in person. They came up to us and gave us like a big hug and chatted with us. It was also, they were the first ones we talked to on the carpet. So since we sort of knew them already, it was very calming since that was a wild experience. Emily, I don't know if you have any other memories from that. Yeah, I mean, I think you definitely, you stole mine a little bit there oh, uh, with, with, <laughs> with the Wibberleys. Um, yeah, them coming up and hugging us immediately was like very validating. Um, <laughs> like not only did they like know who we were, but they were also like, oh, hey, we like you enough that we're going to come give you a hug. Um, I think for me, one of the coolest parts about just this whole 
experience that I definitely wasn't expecting is the kind of, sorry, I'm trying to find the right word. The reverence is not the correct word, um, but the, I guess the seriousness um, with which we were, we were taken, I think, you know, initially when we first, when we first like arrived at the, the red carpet or the gold carpet, uh, as it, as it was, um, we, you know, we had like press access, our names were on the lists. Um, but people like at first weren't really believing that that's what we were, that we were like actually allowed in and that's what we were there to do. And then when we mentioned that we had a podcast and that's why we had been invited, people were a little skeptical. Um, and then as soon as it was like confirmed that like we were, we were supposed to be there and then we got on the, the carpet itself, we immediately like blended in with everyone else that was there and people you know treated us like we were we were meant to be there which I mean we were because we were invited (laughs) but it's kind of crazy to think like oh hey we started this podcast that we record over zoom uh and we wrote this book and now you want us to fly out to Hollywood to actually talk to people that are involved in in the show. So I think the seriousness which with with which the cast and the crew answered our questions um, and just the way even we were treated by the other press that were there to cover um, the carpet was just, it, it was very validating as I really just keep saying. Uh, it's, it's such a cool opportunity. And, um, you know, we were talking about the, the series just having ended, um, you know, hopefully there's a, a second season. Um, I mean, I, I definitely would welcome that. My initial take, so I watched the first two episodes as they premiered. And I was, I mean, quite honestly, I was underwhelmed. I I was not thrilled with the writing or and some of the acting in those initial episodes. But then I got, I revisited it a few weeks ago and I, and I was dealing with uh, sickness. So I'm like, okay, I just need to watch stuff. So I, I watched the remaining eight episodes over the course of a week. And I was absolutely hooked. And so for me, my my take of the series is it was surprising. I was surprised by how engaged I was, given that I was initially disconnected. So I'm curious from both of you, and I know you've covered it some on recent episodes of your podcast, um, what, what words come to mind when you think of the series, uh, both individually and also how it fits within the larger scope of the franchise? Yeah, um, this is a really interesting question. It's almost a loaded question, right? Because um there is a large community of national treasure fans out there we are well aware um that have very divergent opinions on this show they had divergent opinions when it was announced and as it's been airing right um we especially if you listen to our podcast you will know this we feel like we have earned the right to be respectfully critical of the franchise as a whole and i think in summary 
Emily and I generally agree that the first half of the season was fairly weak and the second half was really, really strong. You know, the, the, I won't, in case people haven't watched it, I'll, I'll avoid massive spoilers, but there is a massive reveal at the end of the ninth episode that to me, I was like, you could stop the season there. Like I, I bought it. That was amazing. Incredible. I, you know, that, you know, the second half really turned it around. I think it's really important to acknowledge what this show is. This is not a remake of the National Treasure movies, right? I think a lot of people went in with to this announcement of this show thinking it was a remake and being really, really angry because no one wants a remake. We want the third movie. And so a lot of other people thought this was replacing the third movie. But that's also not true. This is truly a spinoff in the purest sense of the word, such that you have a world that existed from a previous time, and you are now predominantly exploring new characters in the same world. Now, did everyone want that? No. And we know that. No one, were, no one was asking for this when it was, when it was created. However, We've always looked at this as a huge opportunity to gauge interest and appetite for National Treasure 3. And I think it has proven both the positive reception to this show that does exist, you know, people are just happy to be back in this world, as well as some of the negative reaction that is primarily where's Nicolas Cage, I'm not watching this without Nicolas Cage, both of those reactions in an odd way really do a lot to bolster the case for National Treasure 3, you know? Um, and I know Emily, it's funny because Emily and I have had some very different opinions about the show, but I think everything I just said, we generally agree on. Am I lying, Em? No, no, you're completely correct. Um, I, I will say I, a large part of me was very just, I was super excited, right, when it was announced. Um, I was kind of like, well, we've been waiting uh, for something. And now we have a thing <laughs> and I'm going to get to basically like go on another treasure hunt, which I alluded to in the beginning of uh, towards the beginning of the episode here that I, I just really like treasure hunts. Um, and so the idea that I was going to get to experience that was very exciting to me. Um, I think I surprised myself um, in being able to kind of recognize some of the the faults of the the earlier part of the season while definitely still you know enjoying enjoying the ride um as a whole uh, but i will say brett you asked for kind of like a, a word or a phrase right that we would use to describe um the the show and aside from just like generally like exciting uh, i think i would honestly say it's very timely um, and I think that, I mean, you certainly have more uh, experience with this just in your coverage of kind of all things Disney, but it's something that, you know, Disney is definitely moving toward is being more representative of the time and the culture in which we live. And I think, you know, seeing that represented was very exciting for me and very fulfilling for me. Um, it wasn't something I knew that I needed when I saw the first, na when I saw National Treasure 1 and 2, like initially when I was younger, uh, but it's something that I think as Aubrey and I kind of went 
through the process of creating the podcast and writing the book, we started to realize, you know, that there were certain perspectives and whatnot that that were missing from things. And so I think just the idea that those were present in the series and hopefully, you know, continue to be, um, I'm sure, you know, the third movie, though, will be separate from the from the series will also be somewhat timely in the way that uh, it tackles, you know, some of the issues that, you know, we face as society today. Um, but I think there's, there's certainly a level of kind of relevance that this show, that this show hits at this particular time. Yeah, no, I think that's a really astute point. And, and, you know, there's parallel that I can make almost between the film and the franchise. So, you know, National Treasure, as you both likely know, it was supposed to be a Touchstone Pictures release. It was not supposed to be through the Disney brand. And then last minute, I mean, in the initial trailer, you see the logo. Last minute, like last few months, they switch it over to the Disney umbrella. And I imagine that that decision likely elevated the folks' engagement with it. I mean, the, you talk briefly in the book about the box office for both films. And certainly by the second time, people, you know, had generated a family audience. You know, Touchstone, like it was mainly films like Armageddon and Pearl Harbor, which were the huge temples in the years leading up. National Treasure became a, a Disney family-friendly fran franchise. Then you have the series on the flip side on Disney+. Plus. Disney's still trying to make sense of how to market products that are not totally family-friendly. And that, you know, that led to them canceling the Lizzie McGuire reboot and a lot of other things, which I would love to... Uh, explore further but with national treasure edge of history i mean I, I would be interested in your take it feels more mature than the films in terms of like i was surprised by the like the the unquote graphic violence especially toward the end of the series like this is this is surprising it was a continually surprising series on a number of fronts and i think the cultural and and uh, historical relevance right now on on many fronts is great but the surprising nature of even just the tone yeah, I think you point out a really good um, observation. It's something that we've grappled with because we think it's something that the this, this, this show didn't fully get to the point necessarily of mixing those audiences together. I say that because a lot of the criticisms, I think some of the fairer criticisms um, of fans on the show was this feeling that they were watching a CW drama about teenagers and their love stories. And that's something that someone like Emily would really enjoy. But when you have something like that, which feels a little bit more immature, juxtaposed with the highest body count we've seen in National Treasure by far, right? There, we did the math, you know, final body count on season one is 10 people. Um, whereas you get literally one death in each of the movies. Um, there was supposed to even be a little bit Someone was supposed to get stabbed in the second National Treasure movie. I won't say we discussed it in the book, um, but that got written out because it was seen as too much, right? Too many deaths. That's clearly not the case for this show. And so seeing that juxtaposition of somewhat immature storyline with way more mature visualization, um, to me personally, it didn't jive the way it it probably should have. Emily, as someone who's really into, like I said, like love stories and stuff, do, do you recognize, do you also see that weird juxtaposition? 
Yeah, yeah, I think for sure. I, I, one of the conversations that Aubrey and I had, you know, a lot while watching the series, both kind of together with with some fans, as well as individually, was that you know Aubrey kept mentioning this idea that it kind of feels like a CW uh, show at, at points, and you know, my initial reaction to that is like, okay, why? Well, I watch all the CW superhero shows. So like, I'm, I am here for that. Um, but I will say that I think, and this goes back to what we're saying about the way that the season kind of like matured over time. I think you lose a good amount of that in the latter half of the season, right? There are moments where it happens and there are enough moments that I as someone who was kind of into that aspect of things as well as sat was satisfied with but you don't really see the kind of like gung-ho CW-esque feel until like the I guess the second to last scene of the of the series or the season one of the series itself there's a huge tonal shift right in the middle right like huge in terms of the darkness like the even the aesthetic darkness as well as the darkness of the tone itself um even we've talked a little bit about how even in the story there was a shift right right in the middle is when the daca status which was a huge plot point in the first half of the of the show it it never is brought up again after a certain point halfway through and the threat turns from her losing her citizenship well her her ability to potentially gain citizenship in the future to the threat of death you get a really big shift there once she decides that she's not concerned about the daca status anymore once she crosses the border into mexico that kind of to me that marks the huge tonal shift from that that certain I don't want to say that a DACA storyline is CW, but that whole characterization of the, the character backstories and storylines shifts to danger second half. And that's when you get that mature turn. It, it's kind of random feeling, but I, I fully, fully agree with you, Brett, that this is something that Disney seems to be grappling with kind of at large. Yeah, it's 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 inconsistent. And I think that's it allows for a great examination, as I think we were just uh demonstrating you know to kind of focus uh as we wrap up a little bit more on you know the book you, you conclude by talking about you know your ideas of what national treasure three could could look like and i mean i would i would definitely support to the notion of this notion of you know revisionist history and, and us trying to you know, ex, you know interrogate what what's happened in the past because of having new understandings or people distorting truth and that as another element as well you know what what would your goal be with the book's release in terms of how folks uh campaign for or contribute to conversation around uh national treasure three wow that's a big question um in terms of rallying around or campaigning around we hope that this gets people excited again um, you know, the series, the show has done a really good job, I think, of reinvigorating interest in the franchise as a whole. We hope that this helps and gets people to remember why they love the movies so much. Because if 
John Turtletaub is correct. He promised us that they are trying to make the second best national treasure movie when they make National Treasure 3. Well, that was his exact wording. So, you know, recognizing that nothing's ever going to really live up to the original, but we can get pretty darn close. And so reminding people what makes this franchise so special and relevant and rewatchable and current and inspiring, that's, I think the ultimate takeaway message that hopefully gets them asking for that third movie and maybe even gets them brainstorming about what they would like to see in that third film. For us, I think there are a few factors that we we do mention in, in our final chapter that we think are really important to the like the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes of this franchise that the series did more or less successfully in different cases. Uh, the biggest one, I think, being using history as a basis to craft and solve clues. That's so important to this franchise. And sometimes the series missed the mark on that. You know, they did that sometimes successfully, sometimes not. That was a really unique and important part of the movies. Um, I think there are other really important nods that fans would like to see. References back to Charlotte, um, use or re relevance of the Library of Congress, things that really tie all three movies together. And especially page 47, right? That's what people have been clamoring for now since 2007. What's on page 47? We'll give you a little teaser. It originally wasn't supposed to be page 47. It was a different page. Uh, that was really shocking for us to learn, and we hope folks read the book and get surprised themselves. But we all want to know what's on that page, and that must be tied into the third movie. Now, we have our ideas of what it could be. We listed a lot of them in the last chapter. We really would love for Disney to take some of our ideas, but we'll see. You know, we'll see. Oh, I, I'm, I've been ready for 16, 15 years now. So I'm, I, I certainly hope that they don't miss that window of opportunity as it will, as it were. Um, going to ask you all some uh, random Disney opinion questions before we wrap up to let listeners know how to, how to follow the podcast and, and purchase the book. Um, so asking you each uh, some questions. We're going to start off with some Disney music questions. If you can't answer it, that's quite all right. But we're going to start off with what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Uh, Aubrey, we'll start with you and then uh, turn it over to Emily. Ooh, okay. I'm going to say probably by default, it was either Beauty and the Beast or Pocahontas because they were my two favorite Disney movies growing up. 90s Alan Menken greatness. Emily, how about you? Um <laughs> growing up, I'm I'm not I'm not sure. I, I think Beauty and the Beast. I definitely know Beauty and the Beast the best. Uh, I mean I played in a pit orchestra for the show, so I I know like all of the musical like cues <laughs> and where the different instruments come in. Um but I would say it was either that or maybe Hercules, which I realize is kind of a weird answer, but I, I had a very interesting fascination with Hercules. Well, and there's a new interest with the, the show that's happening. Well, it just, well, by the time we uh, release this, it will have just ended at the Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey, the production of Hercules, but those are good choices and um, all, all 90s related. Next question, we'll start with you this time, Emily. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? So you heard it and you couldn't get it out. Um, I see the light from Tangled. 
I mean, I'm going to be super basic. Let it go from Frozen, right? Is that not every like everyone it happens to them semi-regularly because for some reason that that soundtrack and those movies, the popularity has not waned. So, yeah. We all have to embrace our inner Elsa's. Uh, next question. We'll start with you this time, Aubrey. What Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Can I say National Treasure? Oh, you sure can. <laughs> That's me. That's my my cheat answer. Trevor Rabin's amazing score. Yes. Emily? Um, I mean, yes. I, I don't think I would have come up with that answer myself. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I know. Um, but I definitely agree agree with that. If we're talking underrated, um, like I know a lot of the really the really popular ones. Um underrated as a whole, I feel like it would have to be I'm gonna basically cheat here, but like Hercules. Like I feel like there are there are some bangers in in that one that people like just pass up on oh yeah you have all the reprises of the gospel truth for sure among others uh yeah great answers both of you uh, we're going to shift to a couple of book questions um th this might be a little bit harder to answer but no worries if uh, if you can't um so we'll start with you emily uh what is the most recent disney book or disney related book that you've read if you can't answer that that's okay and you can also say your own book but <laughs> Um, probably anything Mickey Mouse related, uh, with my, uh, new nephews. There's no shortage of children's books with Mickey. Yeah. Aubrey? <laughs> um, so for me, it, I'm not going to say our book, even though that is the accurate answer. I am going to say, um, the novelization of National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets that was released in 2007. It was adapted by Anne Lloyd for Disney Press. Uh, we did a whole episode um, on that very recently because it tells an extremely different story than the movie that we know and love as National Treasure 2. Um, and that's part of part of why actually I'm going to go off on a tangent very quickly. Writing our book really increased my appreciation for National Treasure 2 because we were able to fill in, I dare say, almost every single question or plot hole that we had identified as being experts in that movie. Um, and so this novel really helped us do that. Good when you have that uh, additional background information, for sure. Uh, second book question, and we'll start with you, Aubrey. Uh, if you could write a Disney book on any topic other than National Treasure... Darn it. What would it be? Um, maybe dinosaurs. Big dinosaur person. I like. I would like the idea of like a um, you know, prehistoric princess. You know, since we love a, a Disney princess type of movie, like a prehistoric princess who had like a pet dinosaur. Does that already exist? I don't know. I love dinosaurs, and I want to try Ceratops. So that's my answer. Oh, okay. So fictional piece. That's interesting. Yeah. Like <laughs> Very cool. They'll make it a Disney Plus series, I'm sure. <laughs> there you go. Disney, take my ideas. <laughs> Emily? Um, is it cheating if I bring Marvel into it? Because it's technically no. owned by Disney now. Go for it. Um, I would say... I feel like I would like to write 
kind of an examination in a similar way to what we do in in our book of the Disney plus Marvel series that have been released recently. Um, they tackle some big issues, uh, some better than others. Um, and I feel like really taking the time to kind of delve into what is handled well versus what isn't and what could have been done better within the context of superheroes, which I love in general, uh, would be something that I'd be really into. Yeah, that'd be really cool. We're going to conclude with one random question that's uh, distinct for every guest or guests in both of your case. So this, we're going to connect it back to the theme here of National Treasure. We'll start with you, Emily. What actor or actress would you cast in National Treasure 3? So a new person in the franchise. You have to pick a someone famous or relatively famous who you'd like to see in the National Treasure series films i don't have to i don't have to like say what character they would play nope. i just nope, pick just, someone i like some, yeah and who you think would be maybe great in that universe can i pass it to aubrey first yeah <laughs> you're lucky i have an answer already um i'm really into jenna ortega lately um and i feel like here's my thing I really don't want to see ben and abigail have children in the third movie personal preference i know that's a very unpopular opinion I think that that might get explored. If it does get explored, I would love to see like a daughter or like a niece figure who's like really unconvinced, like a Jenna Ortega Wednesday type of character, you know, um, kind of play in that role. Someone who just juxtaposes Ben really well, his passion and his, his, you know, eagerness and why doesn't everyone think this history is as amazing as cool as I do with someone who just like really isn't having any of it I think that would be kind of funny it would give Riley a, a run for his comedy money though I don't think Emily would like that so much absolutely I just want to jump in too because I feel like in the episode that Riley is in he references that they now have a daughter named Charlotte right it's a dog oh it's a dog oh okay I, I, my, I got my hopes up Oh, okay. Thank you for clarifying. Okay. No, my pleasure. <laughs> um, okay. I came up with an answer. Uh, this is largely just related to kind of what I'm watching right now. But um, I would say, I think I would really like to see someone like Brett Goldstein. Um, Who is that? Yeah. For Aubrey's reference. <laughs> Ted Lasso, um, right? He is on Ted Lasso. Uh, he plays my favorite character on Ted Lasso. Um, he's very serious, but he is also a comedian, like in real life, so he definitely can play funny as well. Um, I just think it would be like an, I don't know, I can imagine that being added to like the treasure hunting team and just having someone who was just super like aggressively pessimistic about everything that was happening, but like in a very funny way. Okay, well, you know, maybe he'll have some additional uh, free time now that Ted Lasso's ending, so we can see how what happens can i caveat this by saying i'm only answered the question as i did because i was forced to like i don't want a new character no new friends like don't mess with what we got you know what i mean <laughs> and bring ed harris back to life maybe we'll find a way to we have advocated for ian being the villain in national treasure three because he oh. could be out of prison by now sean Be yeah and sean bean probably could use the extra work these days yeah i mean i love that yeah foolproof idea <laughs> well, 
As we wrap up this conversation, uh, certainly want to direct folks to National Treasure Hunt the podcast, as well as the book, which we're releasing this, uh, if everything aligns, the day of the release of uh, one step, uh, one step short of crazy. Can you tell listeners how to find the book, the podcast, and and follow you all on social media too? Yes. Um, you can find us uh, on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. Um, we're available to listen to basically wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we have a website, um, which is nthuntpodcast.com, where we have information about our podcast, our book, our speaking engagements, uh, the semi-annual tour uh, that we do. And you can find links there to basically like everything you would need. Um, but if you want to go order our book, uh, you can head on over to tuckerdspress.com. Uh, Aubrey, Emily, it was really fun to have you both on. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, being able to explore national treasure even further through the book. And, and you know, I've been listening to some of the episodes and I think that'll, that's definitely uh, whet my appetite for, for more. So uh, thanks for your contributions to uh, allowing us to engage with the franchise further and, uh, and for being on Notably Disney too. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so Thank much. You. And my thanks go out to Aubrey and Emily for joining me on Notably Disney. I certainly encourage you to check out National Treasure Hunt, both the podcast and now the book. I think you'll find that there is a lot of content packed into each episode, each page of the book for that matter, that will help elevate your appreciation of the series of films and, and now the TV series as well. Um, and hopefully we can get National Treasure 3 to happen. There's definitely a uh, a momentum that is building toward that and I think it's going to come down to folks like us who are fans and ones who appreciate the the movies to just kind of uh, inspire that campaign you know share your thoughts on social media uh, make it known that there are people who want to see more of these characters and inspired plot points as well Thanks again, Aubrey and Emily. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.